We're going to pray before we start reading. So let's pray. Father, we, uh, we recognize that uh, without your Holy Spirit and without your guiding, Lord, it's even impossible for us to understand you. Uh, Lord, there's plenty of scholars, there's plenty of uh, academics that seek to understand you through your word. However, without your Holy Spirit, um, they are unable to really grasp that uh, it is about the eternal weight of salvation and love that a God has to offer. Um, May we not look at this book as an academic text, Lord. May we not look at it um, as some uh, metaphor for life, Lord, but this is your word, living, breathing, and active. And through this word, Lord, you desire to pierce our souls. You desire to cut our hearts deep, God, so that we might uh, be open up to who your character is and the plans that you have for us, Lord. So I simply pray tonight that we would not look at this text through some sort of, um, uh, God, it's just a, it's something to be debated, rather, that this is something that you declare to be true. And may we take it to heart, Lord. Uh, may we seek to understand who you are and your character tonight. May this not just be coming to church and pretending to listen and then leaving and feeling good about ourselves, Lord. May, may we truly, truly seek you tonight and find you. We pray all of these things in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. Amen, guys. A few things before we begin in this passage. I want to, I want to go over three things very quick with you because... Uh, as some of you may know, Romans 9 is one of the most debated chapters in all of Scripture. It is, it is one of the most controversial chapters in all of Scripture. In fact, um, uh, in, entire denominations all throughout history have been divided because of this chapter. Uh, entire churches split. People leave churches because of what they, how they interpret Romans 9. This is, this is not a chapter to take lightly, and it's not something to graze over either. It's not something to skip. It's something that we need to look at soberly. It's an extremely hard passage, and it deals with things that are very confusing. And as we go through this text, as, as I extrapolate what's going on here in this text, I want to encourage you to maintain a humble and pure look at Scripture. And, and, and what I mean by that is that we need to throw, we must, in order to unpack scripture like Romans 9, we must throw preconceived biases out the window. What I'm going to attempt to do tonight is look soberly at this passage with as little bias as possible. Now, obviously, we all have different upbringings and backgrounds. Some of you have been in church your entire life in a certain denomination. Some of you are very new to church. And, 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 and as we read this tonight, we need to make sure that we are not just discounting it immediately because of what we've been told our whole lives. Does that make sense? I'm not going to throw in any denominational bias, not even Calvary Chapel's bias. I believe I would be doing you a disservice if I were to just uh, quote other preachers. If I were to quote other denominations, if I were to just read word for word what I've read in commentaries. I want to look at this passage in its purest form tonight. I will use quotes from other pastors, but that only, only the ones that look soberly at the text. 
The second thing I want us to understand is that scripture is oftentimes or occasionally challenging to our worldview. If it isn't challenging to our worldview, we are reading it wrong. If, if you are going through scripture and it never kind of rubs you the wrong way, it, you're not reading it right, you know? Because this is the word of God and we are, uh, a, 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 and our hearts are exceedingly and abundantly wicked, right? And, 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 if, and if we are sinners and we look at a book that calls us to higher living, of course it's going to challenge the way we look at life, Right? And, and, and so if the Bible is not challenging our worldview, at least in some ways, we're not staying true to what it says. Because there are many preachers, there are many churches you can go to, to just hear a motivational speech. Right? And I can suggest some churches for you if that is what you desire. But if you desire to come in contact with the character of God, we're going to go through what the text says. And since God's character is not our character, it's going gonna, it's gonna to rub us the wrong way sometimes, right? So we have to, we have to bite the bullet. I'm going to be there with you. You know what I mean? I'm going to be there right with you. And lastly, what we need to understand, some of you are like really scared about what we're going to go through right now. Don't worry, it's going to be okay. But lastly, lastly, I want us to remember that the entirety of the Old Testament is about revealing the character of God and paving the way for Israel to be a nation that is established and well-known, right? The Old Testament is a narrative of how Israel becomes a people group that is established by God and well-known by the world and given the character of God. So Israel, through the law and the Old Testament, the Old Testament is about how they became a nation, right? And then it's also about the laws that came alongside that nation. Now, the law was meant to reveal the character of God and to keep Israel safe and distinguished from every other nation. That's why sometimes in the Old Testament, you find some really weird, arbitrary, seems like just unnecessary laws in the Old Testament. A lot of it was to differentiate Israel from all the other nations that were surrounding them. So that Israel would be a very unique nation and it would be a nation that was established by God for the purpose, for the purpose of Christ being born in that nation and then being able to affect the whole world through his disciples. If Israel was just some obscure, small, just nation that nobody knew about, then the disciples would have not had the same impact. And Jesus' ministry would have fizzled out with all the other nations. But through the Old Testament and through what God, uh, and through what God had done through that nation... Jesus was able to be born, have his ministry, raise up disciples, and therefore spread the gospel to all of the other nations so that we as Gentiles or non-Jews would be able to experience the grace of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? So we must know that that's what the Old Testament is for. And with that being said, I would like you guys to turn to Romans chapter 8. We're going to go through the last couple of verses of Romans chapter 8, and then we're just going to flip to Romans chapter 9. In Romans chapter 8, verse 37, we're going to start. 
In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that's where Romans chapter 8 ends. Now, let's talk about that really quick. Romans chapter 8. As, as Justin took us through last week, Romans chapter 8 was all about establishing that the reality of Christ and how he has redeemed you, separate from any works you have done in the past, are doing currently, or any works you will do in the future. Meaning that your redemption, as far as the way God views you, is separate from any deeds or actions that you have done. And the current deeds and actions you are doing ought to be living by the Holy Spirit that God has given you. Right, That your standing of God has nothing to do with some arbitrary rules that you follow, but rather your standing with God is based on the grace that he has given you. Based on what he has done on the cross for you. Based on the fact that when Jesus was hanging on that cross, he took your and my sin, nailed it there, and destroyed it. That's why it says we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Through God's love, we are conquerors. He is holding you. He has given you his spirit and calls you into something greater than yourself. That's been the whole theme of Romans. It's set apart. Set apart meaning is, is in the Greek is adhariso, which means new horizons. So when it says you're set apart for God, it doesn't mean, hey, stop doing this, stop doing this, stop doing this. It means there's so much greater things for you than you could ever imagine. So much greater things. So Christianity isn't just this set of rules and, and, and laws to follow. Rather, it is God calling you into a life that is far greater than you could ever imagine for yourself. However, the question that pops up after Romans 8 is a very fair question. And it's the question that the Romans were asking Paul, and that many people were asking Paul, and then, in fact, that Paul was asking himself. If you have read the narrative of Scripture, you may ask this question. Okay, Paul, all right, pastor, you tell me that God will never let me go. You tell me that God has me and that there's nothing I can do or I cannot do that will ever separate the promises that he has made me. That that God holds me, that God loves me, that God desires me. Okay, fair enough. What about the Jews? What about the Jews? In the entirety of the Old Testament, God promised them all of these blessings and all of these things and now Jesus comes? And now are the Jews damned? Are the Jews cursed? Are they cut off? Did God break his promise to all the Jews? Because throughout the narrative of the Old Testament, God is always saying, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. And now it seems, now that the Gentiles, which just means non-Jews, if you are not Jewish in here, you are a Gentile. It's essentially just the word for non-believer. 
since God brought in all the Gentiles, all the non-believers through what Christ did on the cross, now it seems like everything that applied to the Hebrews, everything that applied to God's chosen people, Israel, seems to be of no effect anymore. Right? In fact, they seem to be, in, in some ways, the enemy of Christianity, at least in the book of Acts, you see a lot of, you see a lot of Jews, you know, just starting to say, what are you doing? We're God's chosen people. Why are all these non-believers being grafted into the family of God? Aren't we the family of God? We are the descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. To us belong the patriarchs, right? So the question arises, how can I be certain that God will never let me go when it seems as though he let the Jews go. You tell me that God will never leave me or forsake me, but was that true of all the people that were God's chosen people, but now somehow their faith is of no effect? Or at least outwardly it seems that way? Is, would you say that's a fair question to ask? I, I, I would say that's a fair question, observing this from the outside looking in. It's a fair question to just say, all right, God, you say you'll never leave me, but di- didn't you just all of a sudden say, hey, guys, like this old Judaism thing, <laughs> like not a thing anymore, right? Got this new guy, Jesus, he's much cooler, he surfs, you know. We're going to follow him now. So it seems as though God's promises are of no effect. That's where Romans, that's what Romans 9 is all about. It's about answering that question. It's about answering that question, well, Will God really never leave me or forsake me? Am I really a part of God's chosen people? Because it seems like God's made this promise before. Right? So with that, we go to Romans chapter 9. Turn to Romans chapter 9. I uh, encourage you to keep your Bibles in front of you, and Romans 9 in front of you, because we will be taking it section by section. All right? So I encourage you, this is a Bible study. We're going to study the Bible together. Amen? Amen. Romans chapter 9, verse 1. Paul says this, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Paul's saying, I'm I'm really troubled right now. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs from their race. According to the flesh is the Christ, who is God over all. Just, you know, you just call Jesus God, by the way. A lot of, like, atheists will say... You know, they never said that Jesus is actually God in the Bible. Yeah, yeah, they did. Who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So Paul begins this chapter by expressing, listen, I love the Jews. I am a Jew. They are my kinsmen. They're my brothers, my sisters, my cousins, my aunts, my uncles, my grandparents. All of them. They're my family. I grew up with them. I studied with them. I was a Pharisee. Means I took care of them spiritually. I care for them. So don't be calling me like, don't be calling me someone who, who, who's just saying, ha ha guys, like God loves me and not you, right? Sucks to be Jews now, right? That, that's, not the, that's not the tone that Paul has. 
In fact, he says, if it were up to me, I'd rather God just not save me. He says, if it were up to me, I wish that God would kill me so that they might have eternal life and relationship with God. In fact, Paul's heart here beautifully reflects Christ's heart. Beautifully reflects Christ's heart. Who was, guys, Christ was cut off from God when he was hanging on a cross and when he was bearing your sins. Do you know what happened? God said, I can no longer be a part of you. You know, Christ endured separation from God so that you would never have to. That is why when he hung on the cross, he said, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Meaning the eternal bond between Christ and the Father, the eternal bond that has been always before the beginning of time was severed because he wore your sin on the cross. He endured separation from God that so we wouldn't have to. And Paul's heart here reflects Christ and saying, if I could, I would endure separation from God so that the ones I love, the ones that I love would not have to. Spurgeon said this, guys. I love this quote. He said, get love for the souls of men then you will not be whining about a dead dog or a sick cat or about the uh, arguments of a family, the little disturbances that John and Mary may make in their idle talk and gossip. You will not be delivered from petty worries if you are concerned about the souls of men. Get your soul full of great grief and your little griefs will be driven out. Meaning if your concern is really for the souls of men to be brought into eternal relationship with God, then the small petty things of this world, the little clicks and the arguments and the gossip and what they wrote on Facebook will no longer matter. If your main concern is with the winning the souls of men and women around you and truly affecting your community and bringing people into a greater relationship with Jesus, all the petty, weird little arguments that you go through from day to day will mean nothing. I'll tell you how to build a friendship that will last and that will be absent of drama. Build a friendship that is based off winning the souls of men and women and discipling people. I'll tell you what, me and my friends, we are not perfect, but I can tell you one thing. Petty arguments are not a part of our everyday life because there's greater things at stake. There's greater things to put our attentions to. Paul continues in Romans 9, verse 6. The question is, so, oh, okay, Paul, he loves them, but does Christ love them? Does God love them? Verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. So for those of you that that aren't, familiar with the passage is that God made a promise to Abraham who was considered the father of faith 
God made a promise to Abraham and he said, listen, through you, the nation, my nation, my people will be established. And then Abraham had two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. God chose Isaac. Isaac had two sons, Esau and Jacob. God chose Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons, one of them being Judah. And through the line of Judah would be King David. Through David and, 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 and his wife Bathsheba would be the, descent, the descendants of Jesse. I mean, not Jesse, the descendants of Joseph and Mary. Mary being the mother of Jesus. So, so listen, through the line of Abraham, an entire nation of Israel was established by his great-grandchildren. Right? The entire nation of Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel, established by uh, Abraham's great-grandchildren. And out of those 12 tribes, an entire nation that Moses led out of slavery and into the promised land, they flourished as a people under the law of God. And under that nation, Jesus came. We get that story? That's how God's chosen, that's in short, God's chosen people. I just summarized pretty much the whole Old Testament for you. You're welcome. Still read it. The question is, well, what happened to God saying that he would never leave or forsake Israel? Did God lie to them, right? Because, but, but what Paul says is no. Paul says no. Because the people of Israel were getting really worked up at the Christians and still do to this day saying, whoa, 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 we are the chosen people of God. We are the descendants of Abraham. Through Abraham was the promise. Why, why all of a sudden do all the Gentiles, all the non-believers, all the non-Jews get to be a part of this? We are the chosen people. And what Paul is saying here is that the children of Israel were never just uh, ethnic descendants of Abraham, how did Abraham get the promise in the first place? Tell me, how did Abraham get the promise in the first place? By faith. By faith in God, Abraham was promised all of these things. And do you know what? Ishmael was the firstborn of Abraham, but he didn't get the promise, though he should, you know, by, biologically, Right? And, and, and traditionally back then, they would always give the firstborn the rights, but no, it went to Isaac. And Isaac had two sons. He had, he had Esau and he had Jacob. Esau was the better one. He was the older one, stronger. Dad's favorite. He should have gotten to be the chosen one who would receive blessings. But no, Jacob got it because of his faith. So listen, it was never a matter of I am an ethnic follower of God. It has always been a people established by faith. It was never a national promise based, based on ethnicity or keeping a set of rules. Never. It was always based off who would cling to God's promises. He says right here, not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, Right? Not all people that are children of the flesh are children of God, but the children of the promise. Paul proves that it's not based off ethnicity. It's not based off who your parents are. For those of you that might have tricked yourselves into thinking, well, you know, my, my family is Christian, so I'm Christian. It doesn't work that way. It's by faith. 
It's by choosing God as he has chosen you. Paul proves that in verses 9 through 11. He says this, for what for this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah will have a son. So um, Abraham was promised to have a son with Sarah, his wife, Sarah. About 50 years go by. No kid, right? So God's like, hey, I'm going to give you a son. And through your son, an entire nation, right? He said, Abraham, look at the stars. Your descendants will be greater than the stars of the sky. And Abraham's like, whoa. And he looks at the stars for 50 years. <laughs> Not one kid, God, right? Not one kid. And then Sarah, and then Sarah says, I have a great idea. How about you sleep with my maid? And she'll give you a son. And then God's, and then we will have God's promise, right? A son, right? And Abraham's like, great idea, <laughs> right? Oh, all right, I guess I'll do this, you know, suffer for the Lord, right? And, and so they have, together with uh, Abraham and Sarah's servant, they have Ishmael. And God says, what are you doing? I told you that Sarah would have a son. But God, 50 to something years went by. I told you that Sarah would have a son. I, I, I promised you. And lo and behold, a few years later, what happens? Sarah has a son. Name him Isaac. Verse 10, and not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's promise of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Or translated, I loved less, or I didn't choose. So Abraham had Ishmael and Isaac. Isaac had Esau and Jacob. God chose to work through Isaac. And then when it comes to twins, Esau and Jacob, Esau, the older, the stronger, the favored son, God said, I didn't choose him. I didn't choose him to carry the promise. Now, now it says in scripture that Esau was blessed among many men, right? Esau was given a lot of riches. He was given a great family, okay? Esau was blessed, but Jacob was chosen to carry on God's will. Jacob was chosen. It says that in verse 11. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger. So guys, before Esau and Jacob were born, God said, I'm choosing your younger son. Before they had done anything good or bad for God to say, mm, like, which one's better, right? Because wouldn't you think that God would look at two people, right? Look at two people and say, all right, which one's more charismatic? Which one is more like of a go-getter, right? Which one's more strong? Which one's more this? Which one's more that? And then say, do you know what? This one seems like a better candidate. I'm going to choose this one. But no, God says before they're even born, before they have a chance to do anything good, before they have a chance to do anything bad, I am choosing Jacob. 
If blessing, guys, if blessing was just according to being a descendant from a certain person, then Ishmael and Esau would have received the blessing rather than Isaac and Jacob. Ishmael was the firstborn, but God chose Isaac. Esau was stronger, more talented, favored by his father, the oldest son, but God chose Jacob. It has always been a matter of God calling people into a relationship with him and them responding by faith. It's never been God choosing you because of anything awesome you have ever done. And also, God doesn't just reject you because of something bad you've done. If you know anything about Jacob, he was the worst. This dude sucked. No, seriously. Jacob dressed himself in goat's hair to pretend to be his hairier manlier older brother and his dad had like cataracts and just like couldn't see anything and he went up he imitated Esau's voice and put a hair on him so that he would receive all the blessings from his father he tricked Esau into getting all of his birthright and then later on he would go on and work really hard for his wife marry the wrong woman because he got drunk and then work more for another wife, and then steal his father-in-law's property. That's the man God chose. It might have been easier if he chose Esau, actually, you know? Wouldn't have had to been so much deception going on, right? We conclude here that just because they lived in Israel, guys, just because the Israelites, guys, just because the Jews lived in Israel and were descendants of Abraham doesn't mean they were God's people. Just how not everyone who calls himself Christian is really a Christ follower, right? We know that to be true, don't we? Just because you're in a garage doesn't make you a car, right? Just because you're in church doesn't make you a Christian, right? We know this to be true. That God calling individuals into a relationship with him and, and them responding by faith as Isaac and as Jacob did, being called by God, right? Predestined by God, elected by God, but them also responding in faith as imperfect as they might have been, Those are the people that are God's people. Some people in Israel lived by faith. Some people didn't. So if a Jew rejected the offering that God gave through Jesus, that doesn't mean God flaked, right? So if God says, hey, I have elected you. I want to bring you in through the work I have done through Christ. Jew, Gentile, all of you come in. Just because they rejected Christ doesn't mean God's promises all throughout the thousand years of the Old Testament have been made void. And he didn't follow through with his promise. Does that make sense? Because it's always been God's calling us into relationship and us responding in faith. So just because a part of Israel doesn't respond doesn't mean God didn't keep his promise. Does that make sense? Romans chapter 9 verse 14. 
This is where people really get riled up. It's been fairly tame so far. If you guys haven't noticed yet, we're talking about predestination, election, and where does free will come in at, right? Age-old age old debate. Verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Stop there, really quick. Is there injustice on God's part, right? Because clearly, God chooses some and doesn't choose others. That seems pretty unfair, Right? Isn't that, isn't that by definition, our millennial definition, discrimination? Yeah. Haven't we been, been taught in college that that is bigotry? Right? That is prejudice? Why on earth would God choose one over the other? Aren't we to all be treated equally? Is God unjust? Right? Guys, I'm a millennial like most of you. I grew up with the same media. I grew up in, I'm going to the same college. I've been brought up in the same world as you have. So I want to let you know something. I want to let you know something. For those, for those of you young people in here that are, you know, are constantly questioning, I do it too. I want to let you know, I look at scripture as you do and say, that's not fair. I want to let you know, I look at certain areas of scripture and be like, that's demeaning to women. I want to let you know that I look at scripture and I struggle with the concept of homosexuality too. Whoa, 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 love is love is love is love, right? I struggle right alongside you. However, we all need to come to terms with something. That culture is constantly changing. What you and I believe today will be considered bigotry 20 years from now. That's the wave of culture. That's the way the pattern has always worked. So we must, in order to keep our sanity and our souls, submit to the authority of Scripture. Understand the character of God, knowing that He is loving. That He desires that all would come to Him. And that He is not discriminatory in petty ways as man is. He is an elect based on, well, I don't like this group of people and I like this group of people. He has no preconceived prejudice, racism in him. He is outside of that. Do not, do not project the wickedness in our culture's heart onto God's heart. Do not, do not project man's wickedness onto God's heart. Just because man has taken this book and interpreted it in bigoted ways does not make God a bigot. It makes mankind in desperate need to connect with the kindness that God has. Listen to me. For those of you that have been tricked by our education system, by the way media interacts, for those of you that have been tricked into thinking that somehow you hold the moral ground to God, Please, I'm with, I'm with you. Submit to the authority of Scripture. Knowing that it has lasted and stood the test of time to be loving when people haven't been. Have Christians messed up in history? Oh, yeah. There was all the Crusades, all this. 
You know, so much wickedness comes from a culture that's illiterate of Scripture. Crusades. You know what that was birthed out of? People not reading the word and just doing whatever the priest or the pope tells them to do. Not really knowing it for themselves. You know where bigotry comes from today, in today's age? Watching the news or listening to preachers without ever studying the word of God for themselves. When you're biblically illiterate, that's when bigotry progresses. And so we're going to look at Romans 9, 14 through 16, soberly. Sorry for that very passionate tangent. Romans 9, 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth, so that he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. This claim gets people very, very riled up. Because it takes all human effort out of your hands. Anything you do or do not do doesn't matter when it comes to salvation and God using you. And people don't like that because we still want to believe that something in us can keep God from punishing us or make him not punish us. We really want to believe that, guys. And, and I was very discouraged by these statistics done by Darna. Uh, a very reliable Christian, uh, Christian statistic source, that, that <laughs> what's interesting is that over 50% of evangelical Christians believe in the grace of God, but that you can still work to get to heaven. That there's still some sort of good things that you can do and that there's like this cosmic scale that if your good works outweigh your bad works, that somehow you'll still be able uh, to go to heaven. Um, I think that's a result of, first of all, not reading scripture for yourself and then submitting yourself to preachers and pastors that don't submit to the word of God, right? Um, it's a symptom of a, of a greater disease, um, and so hopefully every single time you're here, if, if you haven't noticed, Pastor Mark, Chris, uh, Justin, or, or, or myself, or Pastor Rob in the mornings, uh, we're all making sure to tell you there's nothing you can do to earn God's favor. We want to believe that there's something we can do to keep God from punishing us for all the bad things we've done. Like do more good works. But Job 42, 2 says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Meaning there's, there's nothing you can do to stop the course that God has already set. I know we want to believe that we are the authors of our own destiny, the pavers of our own path. Um, you don't want that. You don't want that. Some of you have lived most of your life making all of your own decisions and submitting to no one or nothing and you know that that doesn't really end up very well for you. 
there's kind of nothing you can do to stop God from punishing you for everything bad you've ever done. The sins. And guess sins? sins is, it, it, sin is an archer's term. You know, you, 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 shoot for, you shoot for a target and whatever, like here's the target and here's where you shot. This is the sin distance. It's however you've fallen short from the bullseye. And, and it says in the Bible that none are perfect. None, none, none are righteous. No, not one. It's not meant to discourage you. It's just, for those of you, if I ask, if I ask oh, by raise of hands, who in here is perfect? You know, like, no one would raise their hands. You guys are self-aware enough to know we miss the mark of perfection. And, 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 listen, and think about it this way, guys. Think about it this way. If God is perfect, of course he can't let imperfection into his presence. Then he wouldn't be perfect. He would just be a kind of a better version of us. Not worthy of our worship. Not the creator of the universe. We couldn't call him God. And so thus God gives us grace. And he only gives us grace and mercy because he wants to. You guys know that? It's not not because you earned it. It, God just loves you. He just says, I I love you, so I'm going to forgive you. It's It's not because you've done anything to please me. I just love you and desire you. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Uh, a, a woman once asked uh, Mr. Spurgeon, you know, Charles Spurgeon, if you guys don't know, you know, one of the most famous theologians of all Christendom. A woman once asked him, like, I don't understand why God would choose Jacob and just reject Esau like that. And then Spurgeon replied, I don't understand why he would choose Jacob. Right? I just, it, it's, it's not a matter of like, oh, well, like, uh, why, would, why would God choose him over him? It's amazing that God would choose anybody. Right? It's phenomenal that God would have mercy on anyone. Guys, we're in a dangerous place when we regard God's mercy as something we have a right to. Like, as if God is obliged to show us mercy. You know what I mean? Because if God is obliged to show us mercy, is it mercy? No. It's obligation. Uh, no one is ever unfair for not giving mercy, right? Because mercy is not giving you what you deserve, right? And so it, it, when it says, is God unjust? Right? For not showing some people mercy? No, by definition of mercy, he, he, he has the power to give mercy from whomever he choose because everyone deserves punishment. So by nature of what mercy, by definition of what mercy is, God cannot be unjust in this. But we still struggle. Don't we? Because... Some people still get to go to heaven and some people still don't. That stinks. I'm there with you. I don't want you guys to think that somehow we as pastors, Pastor Mark, Pastor Brett, Pastor Tony, Pastor Rob, I don't want you guys to think that somehow we are... We are hardened to the fact that 
gosh, some people are going to hell? I don't want you to ever think that we're like, yeah, to hell with them, right? Like, oh, damn them to hell. You know, I, I, I don't want you to think that anyone who is submitted to the compassion of the Holy Spirit would ever say, well, it's what they deserve. It breaks my heart. That's why Paul said, I wish that I would receive wrath so that they wouldn't have to. Paul uses an example of Pharaoh, but I'll come back to him. Let's go to verse 19. Verse 19. Are we doing all right? Doing okay? I know it's heavy. I know it's heavy. But God is a deep God, right? I'd be doing you a disservice to just graze over things in a shallow manner, right? I believe in you guys. I believe you guys are destined for great things and that God has amazing works for you. And then if I'm a, as a pastor going to shepherd you well, I'm going to tell you the hard stuff and the great stuff, right? So verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? In order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. So, The arrogant question that Paul was getting was, well, you know, if God predestines everything, right? Hasn't he predestined me to sin like this? Right? If God has predestined everything, if God's all sovereign, and he's the one who has mapped out all of this, then didn't he plan for me to make these mistakes? Why on earth would he get mad at me for making mistakes if he made me like this? Right? You guys ever thought of that? I have when I want to sin, right? Oh God, you have made me with a depraved soul. I shall partake. A dog is a dog, right? I am a dog, so I will wag like a dog and bark like a dog and eat like a dog. If God has made me a sinner, I will act like a sinner. Some of you are on the reverse end of this. You'd be like, you're angry. Did God predestine for people to sin against me? Did God ordain that? It says right here, he has prepared vessels of honor and vessels of destruction, dishonor. Did God make some vessels awesome and some vessels not so awesome? Did this potter uh, create some uh, pots for good use, like holding uh, nice iced tea on a hot summer day? And did God make some pots to hold garbage? That's what vessels of honor and dishonor mean. So did God make some people awesome and able to respond to who he is? And did God make some people vessels of destruction? People to just be thrown away and cast away. Did God predestine both? Paul has three things to say about this. Because, you know, the question is also, did God create Pharaoh to sin? Right? It says it right there. Did God create Pharaoh, you know, in the story of Moses and Exodus? Did God create Pharaoh to be like, 
I'm not letting your people go. I'm going to work them harder. I'm going to kill their children, right? Did God make that happen, right? Because think about the repercussions of that. Did God make Pharaoh to sin and harden his heart so that he would commit mass murder of children under the age of two? Did God want that? Did God ordain that? Think of the repercussions if that is true. Because then God is either so confusing that I could never worship him or he is sadistic. And I must worship him or else he will kill me too. These are the questions we're faced with. And they're hard questions, huh? Some of you are like, you're asking questions I never thought of till now. I was content with just being like, praise Jesus. Go on, eat my tacos, leave, right? Sorry. You're going to ask him eventually. So Paul has three things to say to this. Paul has three things to say to this, or, or two things to say to this. First, first he says to the people who are asking the question, like, well, didn't God make me to sin? Right? Might as well do it. God says here, but who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Well, what does molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Some people sin then say, well, God made me like this. That mentality is from a misplaced view of who you think you are. That mentality is from a misplaced view of who you think you were made to be. Listen, guys, I want everyone to listen to this. Listen very closely. You are an image bearer of the creator of the macrocosm. The entire universe. You bear his image. The one from whom all existence emanates, the one from whom all existence emanates, knitted you together in your mother's womb. The same mind that has numbered every star in every galaxy has numbered every hair on your head. And you are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that God prepared beforehand that you should walk in them as is declared in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10. So essentially, guys, for you to say, oh, well, God created me to sin, is, it, that, is, that is false. You are an image bearer of the creator of the galaxies. The same heart who is in his essence love has given you the capability to love, to show kindness, to show mercy. I, I, I don't subscribe to the view of total depravity for the very reason that you are created in the image of God. So by nature, you cannot be totally depraved because you have the ability in whatever small, simple way to experience the emotions of God, which is love, righteousness, a sense of justice, a line that is drawn where you know something is right and something is wrong. Someone who is totally depraved and without hope can never know what is right or what is wrong. But by nature, every man has the law of God written on their hearts. 
God has rights over you. He made you. He loves you. The individualistic millennial inside me hates it, but it's true. God has rights over me. I, as a molded being, have no right to say, well, you know, God, you should have made me like this. Oh, well, if you, if you didn't want me to sin, you shouldn't have put all these things in front of me. Right? That's a misplaced view of myself because, guys, in every single one of you is the potential for so much good. And that's been placed there by God because you bear his image. Out of all creation, mankind is the only one that God created. And he said, he, he created everything. And he said it was good, it was good, it was good. And then he created man. And he said it was very good. The second thing Paul wants to point out is that God doesn't just destine people for destruction. He molds them for mercy. He doesn't destine people for destruction. And I'll prove it. Because every Calvinist will, will say that I'm wrong. He doesn't destine people for destruction. Verse 22. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? By, in face value, I was just totally proved wrong, right? It just says right here that, that God prepared, uh, the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory of vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory. The word right here, guys, in verse 22, I want everyone to look at it. It says prepared, or for some of you, it says fitted for destruction, prepared for destruction, molded for destruction. Whatever it may be, the original word in the Greek, uh, in, in, as far as vessels of wrath, so when it says that, when it suggests that God made Pharaoh a vessel of wrath, the verb in the Greek, uh, Greek uh, grammarians is what they are called, grammarians, pretentious word, call, they call this the middle voice. They call it the middle voice. It's a reflexive action verb. In the original Greek, it is a reflexive action verb. So it should be read, it should be read like this. Desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power has endured with much patience vessels that have prepared themselves for destruction. That have prepared themselves for destruction. When it says that, so if you were to say uh, Pharaoh was a vessel of wrath prepared for destruction in the reflexive action verb, according to Warren Wearsby, it is that Pharaoh has proven himself and prepared himself for destruction. Reflexive action verb. And it is proven in scripture. What we see in Exodus chapter 7 verse 13. Exodus chapter 7 verse 22. Exodus chapter 8 verse 19. Exodus chapter 32. Uh, eight, uh, Exodus chapter 8 verse 32. Exodus chapter 9 verse 7. And Exodus chapter 9 verse 34. All seven of those passages talk about how Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Not God hardening his heart. All seven verses describe how Pharaoh hardened his own heart. What Paul is arguing is that everyone deserves wrath. 
right? Everyone deserves wrath. Jesus calls people out of that. However, when Jesus says, everybody, come to me. I want to show you mercy. I want to give you an opportunity to repent as Pharaoh was several times. Pharaoh, let my people go. No, let my people go. No, let my people go. No. Pharaoh was given several times to repent. We have been given several times to repent. Jesus says, I just want to show you mercy. And we say, no, no, no. Because the same exact sun that melts the ice also hardens the clay. When faced with the mercy of God, some hearts melt and repent. Other hearts harden into their self-righteousness. So it says that God waits. It says, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, because he does want to show wrath, he does want to make known his power because it gives him glory, but it says he's endured much patience vessels of, that have prepared themselves for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Guys, in First Peter, it talks about this. It talks about that God withholds wrath. He, he withholds judgment. He said, I don't want to show judgment yet. I'm waiting for more vessels of mercy. I'm waiting to build up vessels of grace, vessels of mercy. God waits to punish those who have made themselves vessels of wrath so that those who respond to his call with an open heart might see his mercy and his glory. Because if automatically he were to just say, wrath, 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 right? He would just go in and just cap everybody, right, with his wrath, then his mercy would not be known. If he were to just, all right, everybody, do you know what? It's all good. Let's everyone get into heaven. Let's go. Come on. It doesn't matter if you believe in me or not. It doesn't matter if you've accepted the righteousness of Jesus. Who cares, right? And he just lets everybody into heaven. What happens? Heaven just becomes another earth. Heaven just becomes another earth with sin, death, poverty, rape, stealing, war. It just becomes another earth, guys. If God has not first chosen people for vessels of glory and vessels of mercy, sanctified them and gave them the identity of Jesus and washed them clean. So when they get to heaven, it's not just another dumb earth. That's what God's plan is. So God must show mercy and he must show wrath. Both display his glory and both are for the good of his people. And I know that's hard. Hard for me too. Verse 24, almost done. I know this is a wild ride for some of you. And the only thing you'll remember is, Zach yelled a lot tonight. (laughs) Pastor Mark back there is proud of me. (laughs) Do everything to make him proud. (laughs) Verse 24. Verse 24. Even us whom he called, not from the Jews, but not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I call my people. In her who was not beloved, I called beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, 
There they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. So God said all way before Jesus came, way before Jesus came, God said, hey, listen, you got Israel. There's a lot of you, but listen, only a remnant, only a few of you will be my people, right? Just like, guess what, guys, the church guys in America, 71.1% of the United States is Christian. You know that? Guaranteed 71.1% of America is not really Christian. That makes sense? That makes sense? So, hey, there's tons of you. There's millions of you. But guess, only a remnant, only a small part is actually following me and actually clinging to my promises. Isaiah cries out concerning, though a number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Meaning if God did not faithfully walk next to the entirety of Israel, there would have been nothing differentiating them from all the other nations. The original question, guys, was, what did God ditch the Jews, right? That was the original question that, we, that we're trying to answer, right? The original question is, did God ditch them? No. No, he didn't. In fact, he made a way for not only Jews, but people from all nations to be able to come to him, right? God wanted to go global with this thing. He's not an exclusive God. He he wants to bring as many people to him as possible because they're all image bearers, right? They're They're all people he desires. He made a way for everyone to come through Jesus. Guys, that's why we aren't tied to our family's faith. Does that make sense? That's why, that's, if, you're, if your husband or your wife is Christian, but you're not, if your parents are Christian, it, it doesn't work that way, right? It's by faith, by faith in God, not of yourselves, lest any man should boast. And guess what? God's chosen you before the foundations of the world, right? Guys, guess what? God wanted you, chose you, predestined you, according to scripture, before you were even born or even capable of choosing him. He chose you. How? Where, where, I love what Justin said. Like God's previous work, like, like his previous work of choosing you and predestining you and the work he did on the cross and the work he did in your heart and you choosing him, wherever that intersects, not up for us to reconcile. Not up for us to kind of try and like, oh, where, where did it exactly happen? Where does free will and, you know, sovereignty meet? Where do they intersect? We don't know. But if you want Jesus, you get him. Right? And if Jesus wants you, he gets you. Is that good enough for us? You know? That good enough. If you want Christ... You get him. If he wants you, you better believe he'll get you. Some of you have been running away for a long time. I'm telling you, he will do anything for his lost sheep. Romans chapter 9, verse 30 through 32. We're going to, let's do this, right? Let's get through it. Last few verses. 
For those of you that are new here, I don't usually preach this long, right? But this is a meaty passage, right? And I'm not going to apologize for it. What shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as if it were based on works, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Here's the crazy thing, guys. Here's the, here's the crazy thing. Paul's been talking about, all right, God chose Jacob and not Esau. Well, why did he do that? Like, where does God choosing come in? Where does God predestined come in? Guess what? Even in the most famous passage that talks about predestination, that's not even answered. This is the chapter for predestination. This is the chapter for divine election. And guess what? Paul doesn't even answer the question of why he chooses some and doesn't others. Do you know what Paul ends with though? He ends with this crazy paradox saying that some people spend so much time, so much energy, so much money, so many resources trying to pursue God through works and following rules and giving money and attending church. People will spend their entire lives pursuing God through all their actions, but never find him. And then some people who are just walking along, just Messing up in every part of their lives, accidentally walk into church one day and now are saved and pastors. How does that happen? Election, but response in faith. That's what Paul goes back to. He says this right here. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. Why did these people who are trying to work and work and work for God's approval not get it? Because they didn't pursue it by faith. Some couldn't get over the fact that Christ loves them just because he loves them. Some of you have grown up and you've always need to done, you've always need to have done something to get your parents approval, to get your teacher's approval, to get your friend's approval. It's all been based off this list of things you need to do or need to be. And so some people just can't handle the fact that God just simply loves them. They can't handle the fact that despite what they've done or what they haven't done, that Christ is just, I just love you. Just come be with me. Some people can't get over that. And do you know what? That's what I love about the election of God is that it's not based off anything I've done. It's just God saying, want to be with me? And me saying, yeah, I do. I do. That's, that's as, as simply as I can put it. And Paul calls it a rock of offense. Peter calls it a rock of offense in 1 Peter. A stumbling block. Do you know why it's a stumbling block, guys? It's offensive. The gospel's offensive. You know that? I mean, you know that. Some of you spend most of your lives being offended by the gospel. Me too. I'm offended by it all the time. It's offensive because it tells you that you can't get to God on your own terms. 
you can't make up rules of what makes you a righteous person or what makes you spiritual. You can't just start making up stuff about meditating and, and, and weird rituals that you do and being one. You can't just make up a way to get to God. That's why it's offensive because we're individualistic people. We're rebellious people and we want to say, well, if it's my way or the highway, but God says your way, you can't even get that right. Just be with me. I'm making it free. That's what I don't get sometimes. This is, oh, Jesus. So this, so that, like why it's so exclusive. No, God's made it available for everybody. The reason why it's so offensive is some people can't get past the fact that it's about God and not about them. It breaks my heart. It breaks my heart, guys, because some people try so hard and, and they beat themselves up so much. I, I work with high schoolers and to see like girls struggling with cutting and bulimia and, and, and all of these things because they think they have to do these things to be loved or to be accepted. I see all these guys addicted to pornography and just screwing around with whatever girls they see because they think it makes them manly. They don't know that God's just, hey, I'm here, just be with me. Just be with me. I love you. And it says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, it says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And it's not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that anyone would boast. For we are his workmanship. We're his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God's telling you, my brothers and sisters, he's telling you here tonight, he's saying, yeah, I've predestined you. Yeah, I've elected you. And I have this whole life for you that I want you to live that's so full of wonder and adventure and amazing things. Will you just say yes? Will you stop trying to control your own life and just say yes? You're my poem. That's what workmanship is in the Greek poema. You're my beautiful masterpiece. I know who you are. Stop acting like I don't. I know the depths of who you are. I know your sin. I know your past. I know everything you've done. Just come to me. And so, we're going to worship tonight. Dane's going to do a couple songs. We're going to bow our heads tonight. Let's just bow our heads and let's pray to the Lord. While our heads are bowed, um, I'm, I'm not really into the whole altar call, let's raise our hands while our eyes are closed type of thing. I'm not, I'm not into that. I think that if, if you want to give your life to Jesus, you, you are going to confess it before everybody. If you, if you want to give your heart to the Lord and you haven't yet and you haven't accepted the life that he has for you, that's something you pray to the Lord between you and him. And that's something you declare by raising your hands and worshiping him not only here in this room, but throughout your whole life. So, if you want to pray with me to accept Christ in your heart and realize that he has a destiny for you, you could pray with me in the quietness of your heart. But I would ask you, if you receive Christ tonight, if you decide to surrender your will to him, I'm not going to ask you to do anything to 
puff up my pride or the church's pride and to count, oh, this many people got saved tonight. I, I want you guys to sing and to worship God amongst your brothers and sisters with a loud voice and with your hands raised in the air because God deserves it. It's devoting your life to him. So pray with me if you desire to give your heart to the Lord tonight. Heavenly Father, I know that I have spent so much time running from you and trying to pave my own way. Father, I pray that you would hold me tonight, that you would save me. I know that on the cross you died for my sins and you took them all away, God, and that you rose again so that I might live a life with you. And I I have life because you lived for me. I don't have to die because you died for me. I know that you predestined me for amazing things and I just want to discover what those are with you. Bring me close to you, Jesus. Allow me to live a life that is glorifying to you. We love you, Lord. It's in Christ's holy name that we pray. Amen.